Good morning, everybody. Let's approach the Lord in prayer once again as we go back to the Bible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word inscripturated, which is our Bible. We thank you for your word incarnate, who is Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the word preached during this hour of our Sunday service. We recognize that preaching is a means of grace to the church. And you have designed it so that worlds are transformed and lives are transformed through the preaching of the word. And so I pray, Lord, your attendance spirit and your help over your word and in your word and through it this morning. Uh, May each of us be attentive and may you be free to do the work that you would do amongst us this morning. These things we pray in the mighty and the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, in the first two sermons in this brief series on God and the nations, we tried to give you a basic biblical theology of the nations, a theology that we see worked out in the pages of Scripture. The first two sermons had to do, mostly they had to do, with God's plan for the nations and how that plan is being worked out even still in the context of history. We also focused on the nature of God's church, how the church in its multi-ethnic glory is the new Israel. In God's design, the church is the place where the nations gather to worship God. The church is God's new society, his new city. And it is a city or a society that will last eternally, characterized by multi-ethnic, multilingual, multinational diversity, but sharing a common Lord. This morning our focus will rest on the task, the task of God's multicolored church in the time between the cross of Jesus Christ and the second coming. Of Jesus Christ. In other words, our question this morning is, what is our task in 2018 as God's church that is made up of many nations? And we'll see this morning that our task is not, and this runs contrary to many contemporary assumptions and many contemporary caricatures, our task as the church of Jesus Christ is not to reform the morals of society. Nor is our task to make nice people nicer. No, our task is something very different from that. And to see what our specific task is, we go, of course, to Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, read for us a little earlier, where Jesus, the Lord of the church, gives us the famous Great Commission. What I want to do here is simply to read these verses to you once again, and then we're going to go back and dissect them some, as we like to do, meditate through them some more. Jesus, after his resurrection from the dead, says to his disciples, he says to his church, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, there's absolutely no way that I'm going to be able to give you a comprehensive meditation today on these monumentally important verses. To do that would take many sermons, but I am going to share just a few little observations with you. The first thing to say is that clearly Jesus intends to shock us into white-hot worship in verse 18. His intent was to shock his disciples and to shock us into a posture of white-hot worship. In verse 18, the crucified, risen Jesus declares all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The shock comes because it was said of Yahweh, the God of Israel, in Deuteronomy 4.39, that Yahweh is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. So can you discern the shock here in what Jesus says? In Matthew 28, 18, the risen Jesus is doing nothing less, listen, he's doing nothing less than claiming for himself what had been attributed to Yahweh in the Old Testament, namely full authority, full sovereignty, full sway over every part of his creation, earth or otherwise. Jesus is claiming cosmic authority here in Matthew 28:18. What Jesus says in Matthew 28:18 connects him also with the prophecy of the Son of Man in Daniel 7:14 which said this, To him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Yes, Jesus says now, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, it's not that Jesus had no authority prior to this moment in Matthew 28. In fact, earlier in this very Gospel of Matthew, we have Jesus teaching with authority, Matthew 7.29. And we have Jesus himself declaring that he had authority on earth to forgive sins, Matthew 9.6. And even the chief priests and the elders recognized an authority about Jesus in Matthew 21, 23 and following. So to be certain, Jesus had real authority before Matthew 28. But now, after his crucifixion and after his resurrection, Jesus declares that he has how much authority? All authority, the totality of authority has been given to him as vindication for his suffering obedience. Now, friends, we need to reckon with this a little further, these words of Jesus. Jesus in Matthew 28, 18 is simply stating the reality 
of the case. The reality is that all authority, everywhere and anywhere, belongs to him. You don't have authority, and I don't have authority in any ultimate sense. Justin Trudeau doesn't have ultimate authority, and neither does Donald Trump or any other world leader. Your insurance provider doesn't have ultimate authority, and neither does the cancer or the heart disease or the dementia in some of our bodies. Death holds no ultimate authority over us, neither does the global market. The mightiest of human armies is not where the real authority resides. And a 9.0 earthquake off an ocean coast is not ultimately authoritative. Nor is final authority found in any left-wing social policy or right-wing social policy or a secularizing trend. Nor is is militant Islam authoritative in any ultimate sense. Your mood and your setbacks and your trials have no real authority either, and all because Jesus said of himself, how much authority on heaven and earth belongs to him and has been given to him? All authority. Where is the totality of authority? It's in the risen Jesus Christ. Jesus is authoritative right now over your children and over your grandchildren and over your spouse and over your spouse-to-be that you may not have even met yet. Jesus is authoritative over his church. Jesus is authoritative right now over atheists worldwide. And he maintains authority over every practitioner of every world religion that denies him. Jesus is authoritative today over GNZ11, which is the most distant galaxy that we human beings currently know about. Jesus is authoritative over the grizzly bear hibernating in her den right now up Mount Robson on the border of Alberta and B.C., Jesus is authoritative over the microscopic microbes, the soil creatures that are buried nine feet under this church sanctuary. All authority. How much authority? All All authority. The whole enchilada. It's International Week. (laughs) The whole enchilada of authority in heaven on earth has been given to Jesus. Think about Jesus. The God-man Jesus created creation, and the God-man Jesus redeemed creation, and the God-man Jesus inherits creation. By rights, three times over, Jesus is all authoritative in heaven and on earth. See, friends, we have to get verse 18 straight before we launch forward into the task 
that's given to the church in the next part of the Great Commission. We have to first wrap our minds and hearts around the reality of the risen Jesus and his overwhelming, all-encompassing authority in verse 18, if we would hear and obey verses 19 and 20 as we ought. Look at verse 18 again. We're not done with it yet. Now, it isn't that Jesus says in verse 18, all authority in matters concerning a given individual's private Christian life has been given to me. But but outside of a person's private faith, I don't hold any authority. That's not what Jesus says in verse 18. It's much more politically incorrect than that. It's much more alarming than that. What the crucified, risen Jesus claims for himself, listen, in verse 18, is this. That every square inch, we need to see this, every square inch of all of creation falls under his authority, including that atheist mother of three who lives in Uganda, and that Satanist bank official who lives in Delaware, and that altruistic agnostic who lives in Ireland, and that Christian-denying, Christ-denying militant who lives in Palestine. Jesus, we need to understand, is the authoritative creator, ruler, redeemer, and judge to whom how many knees will bow one day? Every knee will bow one day, either happily or grudgingly. Jesus is indicating to us here in verse 18 Nothing less than that all people everywhere owe their allegiance to him because he is authoritative over everything. He's declaring loud and clear here that he is Lord and there is no other over all of heaven and earth, over every creature, over every object, over every principality and power, over every lifeless idol and pretender God, over everything. Well, at last, we're prepared to go to verse 19. Notice the word, therefore, near the beginning of the verse. Therefore. The idea here is, because I, Jesus, am authoritative over every every square inch of creation, because of that, you go and make disciples. So that the rationale for the task of the church to go and make disciples by baptizing and teaching is the all-pervading authority of Jesus Christ. The reason we are, are to be on about our task as the church is because Jesus claims authority over everyone and everything. The fuel for our undertaking the Great Commission is the authority of Jesus. Go, therefore, or better translated from the original Greek, as you are going, therefore, make disciples of all nations. I want you to notice here that Jesus, with his universal authority, gives his church a universal mission. Jesus, with his universal authority, gives his church a universal mission, to quote Richard France, 
That is to say that the mission of Jesus' disciples at the end of Matthew 28 is not only, not only to the nation of Israel now, but to all nations. It is a universal mission. Make disciples of all nations. All along in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus had been promoting, promoting a universal mission to the nations, like in Matthew 8, when he suggested that one day Gentiles would recline at the heavenly table with Abraham. Or in Matthew 21 and 22, when Jesus gave three parables in a row that implied very strongly the inclusion of the nations in the kingdom. Now, in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus commands the church explicitly, notice, to go make disciples of all nations. This is a universal mission that has been given to us by the universally authoritative Jesus. Jesus, who is the new and better Abraham, who brings ultimate blessing to the nations. Now, isn't it interesting, track with me, that the opening verse of the Gospel of Matthew, the opening verse of the New Testament, had linked Jesus to Abraham. And now we see that Matthew's closing verses of his Gospel link Jesus to Abraham again. So we have Abraham at the beginning of Matthew and Abraham at the end. Well, how do the closing verses of Matthew link Jesus to Abraham? Well, the original commission to Abraham in Genesis 12, we remember, had included the words, go from your country, Genesis 12:1, and be a blessing, Genesis 12:2, and all of the families of the earth shall be blessed by your Offspring, Genesis 12.3, or Genesis 22.18, all the nations of the earth would be blessed in Abraham's offspring. When Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, he's saying that as the new and better Abraham who has himself brought ultimate blessing to the nations by his cross and resurrection. And he's mandating his church now. That's you and I. We who are the offspring of Abraham, according to Galatians 3.29, he's mandating us to carry on and continue the Abrahamic mission of bringing blessing to the nations. Now, of course, the main command, the main imperative of the Great Commission is that command, and I hope you have your, your Bible open, that command, make disciples. Listen. The main task of the church, the main task of Snowden Baptist Church is to make disciples of all nations. To make disciples, in the words of James K.A. Smith, is to invite the people of the nations to find their identity and vocation in Christ. And they do this by participating in the worship and practices of the called out people that is the church. That's James K.A. Smith. What is a disciple? A disciple, in the words of Stephen Smallman, is, quote, one who has heard the call of Jesus and has responded by repenting, believing the gospel, and following Jesus. 
I'll read that again. One who a disciple is one who has heard the call of Jesus and has responded by repenting, believing the gospel, and following Jesus. That's what a disciple is. Or if you prefer, here's William Willimon's description of a disciple. Willimon says, disciples, I like this, disciples are those being formed by the good news of Jesus Christ into certain sorts of people who live in the world in certain sorts of ways that are often counter to the world's ways. Now, I am convinced and I have been for many years now, that as much as most of us tend to read these verses, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, we read them in terms of international missions normally, right? So where we send out missionaries to go physically, say, across the Atlantic to minister to people in another physical nation. Let me say, of course, it's okay and it's quite appropriate to read the Great Commission in that sort of way. But I am convinced that we are in a time and in a cultural moment here in North America where we also need to read the Great Commission and apply the Great Commission right here at home. And not only at home, but more specifically, I would argue that we desperately need a fresh reading and a fresh application of the Great Commission within the walls of the church itself. Yes? The disciple-making that Jesus commands here desperately needs to happen right here in the North American church of which you and I are a part. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because, as Mike Horton points out in his great book, The Gospel Commission, and I agree wholeheartedly with him, for way too long, the church in North America has been distracted, and we have been enthralled with marketing strategies and or with entertainment schemes and or with a self-help focus, and or we've confused, listen, we have confused either a leftist political agenda or a right-wing agenda for the concerns and the program of Jesus Christ. All of which, in various ways, has set us adrift. It has set us adrift from the Christ-commanded mandate of making disciples. And further, making disciples within the walls of the church is also a vital necessity right now in North America because many of us in the church, and I'm including myself here, many of us in the church have so imbibed the spirit of the age and the sentiments of the culture around us that we can no longer see some of us, we can no longer see how in many cases the sentiments of the culture that we have digested uncritically are at other loggerheads with the kingdom of Jesus. They are opposed. When someone comes along and suggests 
that to be a disciple of Jesus as Jesus has commanded, well, this is going to mean that you often have to swim hard against the tidal wave of contemporary culture. Many of us will furl our brow at such a comment and wonder, what's gotten into that guy? Make disciples of all nations. As Tertullian once pointed out, disciples are made. They're not born. Jesus does not ask us to discover disciples, right? As if they're just out there already waiting to be discovered. Jesus commands us to make disciples. The church all by itself in North America, before we even talk about the world outside our walls, the church here in Canada in 2018 is in desperate need of a serious disciple-making campaign within our own walls. Do we know, in fact, what we believe and why we believe it? Are we, in fact, following Jesus in the specifics that he has commanded us? Well, here's the thing, friends. I want you to listen. I started playing drums when I was 12 years old. That's 36 years ago. You can do the math if you want to. Now, at first, when I was learning to play the instrument, I found that there was a lot of stuff to practice. Proper technique, finger control, I learned matched grip and traditional grip. I learned independence of four limbs playing simultaneously. 26 essential rudiments, reading music, and all the rest of it. But the thing is, with a musical instrument, you never totally arrive at a place where the learning stops and now you've finally completed or mastered the craft. It never happens. 36 years later, I still have a ton to learn and to relearn also because I haven't been playing very seriously for many years. But, but even the greatest musicians in the world who have been playing for 50 years will tell you there's always more to learn. There's always more to understand. There's always more to apply at whatever level you're at. That picture, I think, is very similar to the picture of being made into a disciple. Now, again, I'm borrowing from Mike Horton here because he's written so much good stuff on this. Being made into a disciple in our post-Christian, and some would argue pre-Christian culture, being made into a disciple literally takes a lifetime. It takes a lifetime of fellowship within a community of disciples. To be made disciple, made a disciple, or to make disciples is a long-haul thing. Would you agree? It takes practice. It takes patience. It takes effort in an ongoing, very persistent way that sometimes is going to feel quite unexciting. There are no shortcuts or fast tracks to total discipleship. Over a lifetime, You'll be learning and relearning the plot line and the contours and the characters and the big picture and the little pictures of God's word. Over a lifetime, you'll be learning biblical literacy. 
Over a lifetime, you'll be learning and understanding and applying and reapplying sound interpretations of God's story. Over a lifetime, you'll be discovering and rediscovering at every point in your life, at every season in your life, just how it is that God is writing you into his drama as a role player. See, it's not about our drama, it's about God's drama, and we are written into the script. How is he writing me into his story today, this week, this year? Over a lifetime, your heart and your mind will be formed by what Horton calls the drama, doctrine, and doxology that come from being united to Christ by the Spirit. See, none of us are born disciples, nor is there any 12-week track to complete discipleship. We are made disciples. We are made disciples, and it takes a long time. I hope you know that. Consider the words again of Mike Horton. He points out that we come into this thing called discipleship, and I love this. We come into this thing called discipleship, he says, dripping with the corrosive acids of our own sins and having cultural assumptions oozing from our pores. Isn't that great? (laughs) And so it stands to reason that there's a ton of work that God has to do with us and in us. The renewing of our minds does not come overnight. I think one of the reasons I love barbecue as a hobby, here I go again, right? (laughs) One One of the reasons I love slow smoking a large chunk of meat that's about 9 or 10 pounds, like for 16 or 17 hours, until it turns into a thing of great great beauty. <laughs> One of the reasons I love that is because it's a great picture of discipleship. <laughs> There's my justification. Low and slow with a stubborn brisket that you're bringing to a whole other place. I'm the stubborn brisket that God has to work on. You know, in the snazzy technological 2018 in which I live, I'm so used to instant gratification and efficiency, and the quicker the internet connection, the better, and if it's not quite quick enough, I get frustrated quickly. You know what I'm talking about. Barbecue forces me to go three miles an hour instead of 100 miles an hour. And at the end, I get to taste the glory of that slow craftsmanship. And it's a glory that would not have come about if I hadn't put the time in and the effort. Okay, I'm done talking about barbecue. (laughs) It's a good thing we have a banquet right after. You don't have to... Being made a disciple and making disciples is a low and slow sort of a thing. It takes time, it takes patience, and it takes effort. God crafts his beautiful disciples over the long haul. They do not simply roll off an assembly line. Well, notice carefully what Jesus says next in the Great Commission after he gives us the main imperative to make disciples of all nations. Jesus now reveals to us the tools, the tools that will be necessary for making disciples. And notice this very carefully. The tools are specifically to baptism and teaching. He says, make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them into, that's literally what the Greek says here, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So there's baptism. Baptism, or immersing believers, is to be done in the name, singular, notice, not names, but into the name of the one God who has revealed himself in three persons. And we see here in this text, don't we, that according to Jesus, baptism is a non-negotiable, essential part of a person's discipleship. Do you notice that in the text? We Baptists take the baptism of believers very seriously, as we should. The New Testament knows nothing about an unbaptized disciple of Jesus Christ. Believers, disciples, are baptized necessarily. Come and see me if you're a believer but not yet baptized. We're going to get that taken care of. Just a little spiritual commercial there. Let's go forward to verse 20 because I want to spend time here. Verse 20 where we see the second tool of making disciples and that's teaching. Jesus says teaching them, teaching disciples to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, my experience in the contemporary North American church is that teaching often gets a bad rap. With some Christians who I, dare I say, some Christians who should know better. For some reason in our day, the idea that a pastor Now I'm talking about pastoral ministry here just for a moment. For some in the church, the idea that a pastor would concentrate the bulk of his time preparing to teach scripture, to teach doctrine, to teach theology. This is an idea that is resisted or it falls into disrepute because the thought is, well, shouldn't a pastor spend his time being a chief executive officer and or being an activist and or being a therapist and or being an organizer and or being the main visitor in the church and or being a vision caster and or being a life coach first before teaching. Teaching doctrine and theology and exegeting scripture is all great, some say, But it's not the be-all, end-all. The pastor can get to that when he's done all the other stuff. And besides, who cares about learning the finer points of doctrine when there are so many needs everywhere? Some of you may have said something like that or heard it. Well, friends, as counter-church culture, as it may sound to some, I will forever maintain my my conviction, despite the naysayers, my conviction that I'm getting straight out of the New Testament, which is that God has given pastors to be chief teachers in the congregation, and therefore the pastor should devote the bulk of his efforts to teaching. After all, the seasoned pastor Paul exhorted the young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13 to devote himself Not to managing conflict or being a CEO or vision casting or offering therapy. 
but to teaching. And again, haven't we seen this morning that teaching is one of the two tools that Jesus prescribes for making disciples in the Great Commission? And as Gary Bredfelt points out in his great little book, Great Leader, Great Teacher, to teach, he says, is to just be simply Christ-like and to follow the example of Jesus. What did Jesus do? He drew disciples around him and he taught them. He taught didactically, and he taught with parables, and he taught with metaphors, and he taught with demonstrations and with objects. Jesus taught in synagogues. Jesus taught by lakes. Jesus taught in markets and on hillsides. The most common designation for Jesus was rabbi or teacher, to be Christ-like and to fulfill the great commission that Jesus has given the church, the pastor needs to be about the business of teaching. Well, somebody says, you know, Dunbar, all this is well and good, but don't forget Proverbs 29:18, where there's no vision, the people perish. The pastor needs to be a vision caster. My reply to that is, did you know that Proverbs 29.18 is actually about the importance of teaching. A much better translation of the beginning of Proverbs 29.18 would be this. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off Restraint. That's a much more faithful translation of the original Hebrew. In other words, what Proverbs 29.18 is actually saying is, where you don't have the teaching of God's word, people run wild. And so Proverbs 29.18 just adds to my conviction that a pastor's main business must be the regular, persistent, consistent teaching and exposition of the word of God. The risen Jesus' main concern for Peter is that Peter would do what? Feed his sheep. Teaching scripture and doctrine and theology is of such vital importance because it strengthens and it fortifies and it nurtures the sheep to withstand the attacks of the wolves who seek to devour And you know that there are many theological wolves out there right now. Some have published books and have YouTube channels. Well, friends, I must hasten to add here. We're working all this to a conclusion. I must hasten to add that Jesus' command to teach in the Great Commission, I hope you know this, is not just reserved for pastors. Did you know that? If you are a disciple... If you are a disciple-making disciple, which is what you are if you're a Christian, then you are called to teach. Well, somebody says, I don't have the gift of teaching. It doesn't matter. As Bredfeld points out in his book, I may not have the gift of hospitality, but it doesn't exclude me from being hospitable. As a disciple-making disciple, you are called to teach. Simple as that. It may not be teaching from a pulpit to a congregation. It might, might not be teaching in a classroom to students. But maybe it's teaching the word of God to your child at breakfast time. Maybe it's sharing what God has shown you in his word over coffee with a friend at Starbucks or Tim Hortons or Second Cup.
Maybe it's teaching the truth of just a phrase of Scripture to somebody who's languishing in a hospital bed. Teaching takes on many forms. And God gives a special blessing to the obedient disciple who teaches others all that Jesus commands. I always think of Ezra 7, verses 9 and 10. I love these verses where it says, it says that the good hand of God rested on Ezra. Why? Because, it says, Ezra had set his heart to do what? To study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. The the hand of the Lord rested on Ezra because Ezra loved the word and did the word and taught the word. Well, the end of the Great Commission has Jesus promising his disciple-making disciples promising those who baptize and teach the nations blessing. He promises blessing in what we do. In Matthew 28, 20, he says, Behold, I am with you. Here's the blessing. I am with you always. Again, he sounds like Yahweh in Joshua, telling Joshua, I will be with you. I am with you always as you travel away out of your exodus toward the promised land, I am with you always to the end of the age. The one with all authority in heaven on earth blesses us, we need to see, with his authoritative, risen presence in our disciple-making efforts in this time while we await his return. Well, friends, our time is gone once again. My prayer is that over these past four weeks, of God and the nations, as we've heard amazing testimonies and as we've immersed ourselves in a meditation on God's plan and God's future for the nations, and as we focus today on the task of God's multi-ethnic bride, his church, my prayer is that our understanding of who we are and where we're going and why we're here that all of that has broadened out just a little bit. As those purchased of God by the blood of Jesus, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, may we reset ourselves on mission and be doers of the word, working in the Spirit's power to make disciples of all nations, whether right here in Montreal or abroad. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, It is amazing for us to see from Genesis right through Revelation that your plan to bless the nations of the earth, that they would get benefit and you would get glory, this has not changed. Human beings have started and stopped. They have tried and they have failed until Jesus came to be the one to bring ultimate blessing to the nations. And now Jesus has given us this commission as the new and better Abraham, as the Lord of heaven and earth with all authority, to go make disciples of all nations. May we take this seriously, and may the Spirit help us to take this seriously. And may we be doers of this word, and not hearers only. In the name of Jesus, amen.